through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee that we have to deal with such a God as thou art. Slow to anger and of great compassion, thou hast not looked upon us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Slow to chide and swift to bless. And thou hast dealt with us in grace through Christ Jesus. If there be those listening today who have not bowed before that grace, we pray thee that they may understand that the day will come when they shall meet thee in judgment. O God our Father, we pray thee that they may know what it is to flee to thee while it is yet day, before thy judgment fires break forth upon this world. Bless each listening heart in this hour. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are studying for these few weeks in the great book of Revelation, the prophetic book of the Scripture, the last book in the Bible, and have come today to the seventh chapter of Revelation and the first eight verses. After this, I saw four messengers standing on the four corners of the earth, holding fast the four winds of the earth, so that a wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor in any tree, and I saw another messenger ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a great voice to the four messengers to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the bond slaves of our God upon their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, a hundred and forty-four thousand sealed from every tribe of the children of Israel. Out of the tribe of Judah, twelve thousand sealed. Out of the tribe of Reuben, twelve thousand. Out of the tribe of Gad, twelve thousand. Out of the tribe of Asher, twelve thousand. Out of the tribe of Naphtali, twelve thousand. Out of the tribe of Manasseh, twelve thousand. Out of the tribe of Simeon, twelve thousand. Out of the tribe of Levi, twelve thousand. Out of the tribe of Issachar, twelve thousand. Out of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. Out of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And out of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. How completely God is master of all the course of events is now seen in the most direct way. Upon the opening of the sixth seal, there will be a political convulsion which will shake every governmental force, bringing terror to the hearts of men of every class, from the kings and the great of the earth to the bondmen and the freemen. All alike will cry out to the mountains and the rocks, thinking that the time of the wrath of the Lamb has come. They will be mistaken, for these judgments are but the beginning of sorrows. The scene that comes with the opening of chapter 7 is startling in its sudden change. Imagine that you are gazing upon a motion picture where the action has been swift and terrible. A great storm has been raging. Waves have torn at the rocks, a lighthouse gives way, and the parapet starts to fall toward the sea below. Suddenly something happens to the projector, and the continuity of the picture is suspended. One scene remains upon the screen. A giant wave has risen to its crest, and the foam stands suddenly still. The stones that have begun to fall from the lighthouse hang suspended in midair. In the midst of the clamor of the world's upheaval, black sun and bloody moon, terror of humanity in its naked cowardice, 
four messengers suddenly appear. They lay hold upon the winds of judgment. The Greek word is a strong one, like the hold of death upon the body. And all judgment is suspended. The winds may not blow upon the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. These symbols are easy to interpret. The earth is Israel, the sea, the Gentiles, the trees, as we know from the famous parable in the ninth chapter of the book of Judges, refer to those in authority. We have seen that the word translated angels is really messenger. And in verse 1, the messengers are undoubtedly angelic beings, spirit beings. We would make the distinction clear, for the time will come in our studies when we will find one who is called a messenger, miscalled an angel in our translations, who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, the four corners of the earth are mentioned here, and this has two possible meanings. It may include the uttermost parts of the earth, or it may be restricted only to that portion which is in view in the prophecy, a localized judgment covering either Palestine or the land that is in the revived Roman Empire. As a general rule in this last book of the Bible, the judgment scenes do not cover the whole of the earthly globe, but that portion of the earth which comes under the rule of the Antichrist. Outside and beyond these dominions, another power is rising which will come in sharp conflict with the forces of the man of sin at the Battle of Armageddon. These will be studied in due course. At all events, the fact that the four messengers stand on the cardinal points indicates that they are far removed from each other and that the judgment that is now arrested is wide in its extent. In many places in the scriptures, the wind is used as the symbol of divine judgment, and the fact that there are four winds shows that in this case the judgment is universal. We read in Jeremiah 49, 36, And upon Elam will I bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven. It's clearly a picture of the judgment of the Lord coming from every side. A little farther on in the same prophecy, in chapter 51, 1, we read that God will raise up against Babylon a destroying wind. In 2 Samuel 22:11, the same figure is used in a manner that is clearly indicative of the judgments of God. A marginal reading of Zechariah 6, 1-5 speaks of the chariots which come out from the presence of the Lord, and in verse 5 they are said to be four spirits of the heavens. The Hebrew word is that which is usually found for wind. One commentator has given such an admirable summary of the development of the judgment scenes that we can do no better than cite it. As we are coming now within view of God's greater judgments, it will be well to point out a few facts so that these may be in mind about all of the divine judgments as they are described in the book of Revelation. These facts are as follows. One, God's judgments begin with physical sufferings. In chapter 6, 11 to 17, and end with spiritual sufferings. They begin with men who are lesser sinners, that is, men in general, and end with those who are the greatest of sinners, that is, with Antichrist and the false prophet. Three, they begin in grace and mercy, that is, with the intention of leading men to repentance, and they end in wrath and torment, that is, in final punishment of sin. Fourth, they begin with comparative lightness and end with terrible intensity. And lastly, fifth, they begin in time and they end in eternity. Now that we are considering a moment when judgment is temporarily suspended is evident, not only from the tone of the chapter under discussion, 
but also from the direct statement of the other messenger who ascends from the sun rising, having the seal of the living God. He cries to the four messengers of judgment, ordering them to arrest their activities. He clearly states, however, that this is only until. When God's elect shall have been marked in order to preserve them in the midst of the judgment, the indication is clearly that the winds will blow once more. The motion picture will begin to turn, the waves will dash on, the suspended stones will fall, and the scene will proceed as though there had been no interruption. Now this may also be seen from the fact that as soon as the elect of God are sealed, we return in the next chapter to a description of angels sounding forth the trumpets of judgment, carrying on their avenging work for God. God now proceeds to set his seal upon a great body of men before the judgment trumpets shall sound and the vials of his wrath shall be turned out upon the earth. Let us consider the nature and the purpose of this sealing. We know, of course, that the salvation of any individual in any age is, from one point of view, the result of the active grace of God, and from man's point of view, is the result of the individual belief in God's word about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is, of course, no change in the tribulation period. These children of Israel who are now sealed have been chosen by God for his purposes and have come in their own souls to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is still at the time of this scene the despised and rejected of men. Now upon their faith the seal of God will be effectually set. The grace that saved them gave them their position as saints of God. There will be a great change in their position. They had been a part of Satan's goods, but now they will have become the property of the Lord who redeemed them. Upon them, therefore, God will set his seal, so that they may be distinguished from the world which he disowns. Just as blood was put upon the door of the house of Israel in Egypt, so that the angel of death would pass over these houses and strike only those which were not marked, so the seal of God is put upon the forehead of his own, so that the angels of judgment passing through the world shall know those who are God's. The seal on the forehead of those who are the Lord's servants takes us back to a great picture in the book of Ezekiel. A man clothed with linen and who carries a writer's inkhorn is ordered by God to go through the city and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all of the abominations that be done in the midst of Israel. We read this in Ezekiel 9.4. Others were then ordered to go through the city and to slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Now from the context it's clear that it is a prophecy of God's dealings with Israel at the time of the end of the age. The Lord may indeed for his own purposes permit that some of the wrath of Satan shall touch those who bear his seal upon their foreheads, though the worst of his agents will be unable to touch those who are thus sealed. And this will be working out the plan of God. Judgments that come from God himself will never touch his own. It's expressly stated in the ninth chapter that the satanic forces which are released from the bottomless pit and whose nature and character we shall study in due course will be able to hurt only those men who have not 
the seal of God in their foreheads. When we read further in this same chapter on the nature of the torments which these demon hosts shall bring to men, we see the reality of the protection which is then afforded to those who are the Lord's own. Oh, we read in 2 Timothy 2.19, the foundation of God standeth sure. In every age and on this foundation, he tells us there is a seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And then as now, this certainty of position is a call to holiness of life, to practical separation in accordance with our positional separation and sealing. There are two questions in connection with this portion of the vision which remain to be discussed. The number of those who are sealed and their identity. According to the record, each of the 12 tribes mentioned furnished 12,000 of those who received the mark in their foreheads. The number 12 in the scripture has a special association with the idea of completion. And it is also attached inseparably to the destiny of God's chosen earthly people, Israel. Immediately, of course, we think of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And when we come to the last great vision of scripture and see the vision of the eternal home of all the company of the redeemed, we find these two united. The New Jerusalem has 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Furthermore, we find that the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And thus we see Israel and the church united in one eternal structure, and yet separate one from the other. The idea of completion is found yet again in this vision of the heavenly city, for its dimensions are given in terms of 12. The wall is 144, the square of 12, 144,000 cubits, while the city itself is 12,000 furlongs in length, breadth, and height. In this symbol of the perfect cube of 12, we find the idea of completion carried out to its utmost in the scripture. The thousand is 10 raised to its third power. The number 10 is constantly used in the scripture in connection with government and has even been called the number of government and responsibility as exemplified in the 10 commandments. We see now in this description of the, of the putting of the seal upon the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, the perfection of God's dealings with his own during the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. These numbers then may be either literal or symbolical. This will be seen more clearly when we discuss the identity of those seen in the vision. That they are literal Israel and not symbols of the believers of this age must be self-evident to the mind that does not approach the study of Revelation with preconceptions. The enumeration of the 12 tribes guarantees the literalness and gives us every right to affirm that this is Israel, the Jews, and Israel as a nation that is presented to our view, God's great future for them. Yet as usual, there are commentators who attempt to show that this is the church. We cannot protest too strongly against those ideas which rob Israel of its blessings. Too frequently in the commentaries of modern times, even among men who are distinguished by their devotion to the fundamental truths of the word, Israel has been used as a sort of receptacle for all of the curses found in the scripture, 
while anything that has the slightest blessing attached to it is immediately taken to refer to the church, even though such interpretations have led to manifest absurdities. If we read the promises made to Israel throughout the whole of the word of God, and if we read them honestly, we must be convinced that the church has never succeeded to this inheritance in any adequate way. And there is no possibility that these promises ever can be fulfilled in the church. While we have constantly affirmed the necessity of seeking the true meaning of symbols, we must see the vast difference between such a method of interpretation and the spiritualizing, which certainly does not come from the Holy Spirit, who would never treat the word of God so lightly. Christ came not to destroy, but to fulfill. And the promises made to the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must certainly be included in that which God swore by himself that he would perform. Yet, moreover, for example, devitalizing the promises as though there were not enough for the church takes the tribes here to be the saved of our age, even though he admits a moment later that the multitude of all nations in the verses which follow these under consideration must be regarded as another pictorial representation of the whole company of the redeemed. We have singled out this one commentator because of a parenthesis which he has written into a quotation of Hengstenberg, the great German commentator. The 20th century commentator quotes the 19th century commentator approvingly. The sealing, the placing of the seal, refers to the entire duration of the Christian era, even to its final completion. Therefore, it has not yet lost its significance, and for the present time in particular, it is full of consolation as the sixth seal is beginning to be realized anew in a manner never seen before. So it seemed to him over 70 years ago, and how much more today in this atomic age. Now, when we see writers three quarters of a century apart, claiming and claiming again that their day is the final day, mentioned in some passage of the Apocalypse, we are reminded of the criticism of the great Catholic scholar Crampon, who has so devastatingly dealt with the historical method of interpretation. He points out that Joachim de Flore, who lived at the end of the 12th century, divided up the seals, trumpets, and vials to cover the centuries which had pre preceded him, thus demonstrating that the time of the end had come. Five hundred years later, Holtzhauser, performing the same operation, assigning the seals, trumpets, and vials to other historical facts, bringing it up to his day. It is now being done again by Morrow, and all three thus believe on such evidence that their moment was the last breath of the age. And I suppose now that we're in the age of atom bombs and hydrogen bombs, somebody else will come forward with another series that will include these stupendous events. We cannot too strongly insist on the error of the historical school of interpretation, and we would wish students to consider most earnestly Crompone's summary with his own italics in which he shows the impossibility of the historian's interpretation of the apocalypse. For he says, But are not many of the symbols much too great and out of all proportion with the events to which they are applied? Bossuet himself and most of those who have followed him have felt this difficulty to protect their system 
have recognized that their historical applications indeed do not exhaust the whole of the meaning of the apocalyptic visions. We would then ask the partisans of this method a direct question, and I'm still quoting the famous Roman Catholic commentator. If on your own admission the events to which we apply the prophetic texts answer only feebly and partially to the great symbols and energetic expression of these texts, on what do you base your right thus to apply them? Since you have no true exegetical reasons, is it that you have taken up your interpretation because you have found some authorization in the tradition of the fathers? And then this Catholic commentator continues, there is no such tradition. And he underlines this in italics himself. Before the 16th century, not a single father or commentator ever applied the great prophecies of the apocalypse to the events that brought about or accompanied the fall of the Roman Empire and the history of the church. And that is a really magnificent summary and one that has never been answered by any theologian, Catholic or Protestant. Of course, there are Catholic commentators that take the position opposed to the Catholic commentator I have quoted, as there are Protestant commentators on both sides of this question. But unhesitatingly, I take my position with those who see that the entire book of the Apocalypse is prophetic from chapter 4 to the end, and that all of the events which are described there are yet to happen in this world after God comes to the end of his use of the church on this earth. So the twelve tribes then must be taken as literal Israel and not as the church, and certainly not as any little section or claims of such a cult as those who would call themselves God's special witnesses. At the time of the division of the kingdom, the faithful of the northern tribes obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Jerusalem in sufficient numbers to guarantee the succession of all of the twelve tribes. And before the death of Rehoboam, God looked upon the tribes as a unity, seeing all Israel in Judah and Benjamin. This, of course, destroys absolutely the claims of those who have looked upon Britain and America as being ten lost tribes and who have imagined that there's a difference between the Jew and Israel. No, no, these are the same. And most definitely, all of the tribes are now seen in, in Judah and Benjamin. Thus, Nathanael was an Israelite indeed, we read in the first chapter of John. Anna was of the tribe of Asher. And the twelve tribes were represented in the multitude of scattered Jews who had come from various parts of the earth and who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and who were addressed in the opening verses of the epistle of James and the first epistle of Peter. No, there is no possible identification of these twelve tribes with anyone living nationally upon this earth today or with any group spiritually that calls themselves the 144,000. These claims are entirely self-substantiated. There is no authority for it in the word of God. And it is only by denying that these events are in the future that anyone can attempt to bring them down into the present and to destroy the whole logic of the church age in which we live, as set forth in the revelation of God. The twelve tribes of Israel are Israel the twelve tribes. And that's exactly what it means. It can be taken in its utmost simplicity. And here we can say 
If God didn't mean what he said, why didn't he say what he meant? But we can trust it that here there is a literal setting forth of what is going to happen on the redemption of Israel. Now the problem of the names of the twelve tribes will come logically with the next study as we see the nature of the work that is to be done by those who have been sealed. And we ask thee, our God and Father, to bless the study to every heart. But there may be those who touch thy word with more respect as they see how thou hast written in advance that which is to come to pass in this world. Hear us and bless the truth to each heart. If there be unbelievers who listen, give them restlessness, that they may know no peace till they rest in Christ. But upon thy believing own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And a new sense of thine eternal faithfulness, and unto thee be the glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thyself, and thou hast made it possible for us to come to thee boldly, because thou didst so love us that thou didst make provision for our sins, and make it possible for us to stand in the presence of thine holiness. Bless each listening heart, and use thy word to thy glory in building and strengthening thy people. In the name of the Lord Jesus we ask it. Amen. Today we begin with the seventh chapter of Revelation, verse 9, and read to verse 17 in a free translation. After this I saw, and behold, a great multitude, which no man was able to number, from out of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cry with a great voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who is sitting upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the messengers were standing in the circle of the throne, and of the elders, and of the four living creatures, and fell down before the throne upon their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, the blessing and the glory and the wisdom and the thanksgiving, and the honor and the power and the strength be to our God through the ages of the ages. Amen. And one of the elders asked, saying unto me, These who are arrayed with the white robe, who are they, and whence came they? And I said unto him, My Lord, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they washed their own robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who is sitting on the throne shall dwell over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun fall upon them, nor any heat because the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and will lead them to fountains of waters of life, and God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. When the forces of chaos were unleashed in France more than a century and a half ago, and when terror followed revolution, it was a great spiritual movement that occurred under the Wesleys which kept England from following in the same path. Historians have called the movement the Great Awakening, both of these events, the revolution and the awakening, are but faint shadows of what shall take place in the future when the Antichrist is reigning upon the earth. The world's great tribulation, chaos indescribable, shall certainly come to pass. We have the word of the Lord Jesus Christ that it shall be the greatest of all time, just as surely the world's greatest spiritual movement shall take place at the same time. The passage that lies before us for study is one of the proofs of this fact. 
we shall consider the preachers used by God in this great awakening, the message that is delivered by them, and the host who shall be led to the knowledge of the Savior through their preaching. We have pointed out in our previous chapter that these are undoubtedly literal Israel. This may be seen not only in the mathematical way in which they are linked each to his tribe, but also from the fact that their destiny differs from that of the church, seated with Christ on the throne, and that of the multitude who shall serve God day and night in the temple. This company is seen rather as a special retinue, a glorious bodyguard to accompany the Lord Jesus on all his movements during his glorious reign on earth, as we see in Revelation 4.4. That literal Israel is in view may also be seen from certain details in connection with the enumeration of the tribes. A careful examination of the dozen places in the Bible where all the twelve tribes are mentioned will reveal to us some very beautiful truths. Jacob had twelve sons who were the fathers of the twelve tribes. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, whose names later were added to the list of the tribes. This gives us fourteen names, out of which twelve are selected, but not always the same twelve, in presenting the truths concerning Israel. Levi, the priestly tribe, had no military duties to perform and was not given a portion of the land when the tribes entered Palestine. The portion of Levi was to be the Lord himself, as we read in Deuteronomy 18. In order to fill his place both in military affairs and in the land, a new tribe had to be found, so Joseph was replaced by his two sons. Leaving out the name of Levi and that of Joseph, twelve names remained. In this list of tribulation messengers, the twelve names, however, include the name of Levi and that of Joseph, and also one of Joseph's sons, Manasseh. Ephraim and Dan are omitted. Why is there this particular choice in the book of Revelation? The answer is to be found in some of the Old Testament teachings concerning Dan and Ephraim. During the wanderings of the children of Israel in the desert, an incident occurred which brought a curse on the tribe of Dan. A young man, the son of an Israelitish woman, Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan, we read in Leviticus 24:11, blasphemed the name of Jehovah and cursed. By a definite order of the Lord, the young man was brought out and stoned to death. This blasphemy, of course, was in direct disobedience to the nature of God and had a certain curse attached to it, which was later recorded by Moses. In the Palestinian covenant, we find God's statement against blasphemy. The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in the book of the law. Now in the passage that proceeds, we read, lest there should be among you any man or woman or family or tribe. According to this, the name of Dan would have to be blotted out. But there were also other serious charges against Dan. Jacob in his dying blessing prophesied of Dan, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels so that his rider shall fall backward. When Deborah and Barak delivered the children of Israel in the time of the judges, the other tribes sent men to fight, but Dan remained behind in the cowardly way. In the Song of Victory, though there are praises for the other tribes, 
All that could be said of Dan was, why did Dan remain in ships? Far more serious than this, however, is that Dan seemed to have been a leader in apostasy. Jeroboam caused golden calves to be made and set one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. Almost a hundred years later, this calf of gold was still to be found and worshipped in the days of Jehu. Jeremiah tells us that Dan was a voice of calamity. Amos had to cry out against the people who were still walking in the way of idolatry, crying out, Long live Dan! Long live the way of Beersheba! As we read in the Hebrew of Amos 8.14. It was in Ephraim that Jeroboam built his city of idolatry wherein he dwelt. It was from Ephraim that he set up his attempt to gain control of all power. It was of Ephraim that God said that he was joined to idols and was to be left alone. How terrible a thing it is to be let alone by God now appears in the book of Revelation. Dan and Ephraim will not be protected by God's seal during the great tribulation. Though they will come to salvation with all Israel, they will not be used as God's witnesses. It may be easily understood why the Lord did not include Dan and Ephraim in the list of the tribes who are to do the tribulation preaching. Those who have a weakness for idolatry cannot be permitted to witness in a day when the false prophet of Antichrist is pointing to a statue of the man of sin and calling upon people to worship him. The question may arise in the minds of some as to how the tribes will be discovered and identified since they are so scattered today. They reckon, of course, without the power of God. Just as the Lord Jesus will be able to sort out all of the bodies that have gone back to the dust of the earth, and raise them from the dead according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself, so God will know the tribal identities. In all this we see one of the most beautiful truths of the Bible shining forth with great brilliance. Though Ephraim and Dan have had their candlesticks removed from their places, and are not permitted to take part in the preaching of the gospel of salvation and the accompanying gospel of the kingdom, they are not yet cast off from God. Just as the risen Lord Jesus Christ took care to send word to the erring disciple Peter that he was still the object of his love, Dan is singled out for mention in connection with the ultimate inheritance of the people. The Lord Jesus said, Go tell my disciples and Peter. How this thrills our hearts as we realize the safety of the believer when once the Lord Jesus Christ has set himself to his redemption. How wonderful, therefore, that along with all these terrible things in the history of Dan, Jacob should have been able to prophesy of that which shall befall you in the last days. Especially of the erring one, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Finally, in the last chapter of the book of Ezekiel, the tribes are seen in the millennial glory, and Dan is among them. The grace of God shines out, for when the land is divided for the millennial reign, Dan's portion is put first of all the tribes in Ezekiel 48. In no other place in all the scriptures is Dan mentioned first. This honor usually goes to the eldest, Reuben. In Revelation, Judah, the tribe of the Lord Jesus Christ, is first. Every one of us can be thankful that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. What a blessed truth is revealed in all that we have seen in these lists of the tribes. How sure we may be that the Bible is the inspired word of God. 
How absurd to think that all this could occur by chance or be the work of literary artists. This is indeed God's word. He is indeed a God of grace. And though for his own purposes he may withhold the privilege of witness to those who are, nevertheless, those who have come unto God by him, he will bring safely home to the Father. There is, of course, but one message that can reach the hearts of men. The preaching that shall be delivered by these sealed servants necessarily must be occupied with the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation in every age has been on the basis of what Christ accomplished on Calvary. Adam and Eve believed God's word about the Redeemer who was to come, and they were covered with the garment provided by the shedding of blood which typifies the righteousness of Christ. Abel offering the lamb by faith presented to God an acceptable sacrifice. Abraham saw Christ's day and was glad. Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ. We today are saved by looking back to the cross as they were saved by looking forward to it. During the great tribulation when the church has been removed, the Israelites sealed as well as the multitude that no man can number will all be saved because Christ died. It is also true of those who shall come to God during the millennial reign of Christ. Let us make it plain. Not one human being will be in heaven unless he has come through faith in God's word about his son. Some may understand it better than others. Some, like those who were near the center of the camp when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, may get a close view and others from the edge of the camp may see the dim shadow in the distance. The important thing is that they have faith to look to the lifted Christ. Only God can touch those who are dead in trespasses and sins and cause them to look. But of this we may be certain, that all who look shall live. There is an important addition here which many people overlook in their study of the Word of God. To the central truth of the redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ from the cross is added a distinct message for every different age. While we are saved today in the same way that Moses and David were saved under the law, there is a difference in the way that preaching is carried on from age, one age to another. The man who asked the Lord Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life, received quite a different answer from the Philippian jailer who asked Paul the same question, what must I do to be saved? At one time in God's dealings with men, it was necessary to bring a lamb or some other blood sacrifice and offer it before God. It was also necessary from Moses to Christ that anyone who was saved should be circumcised and adopted into one of the Jewish tribes. Ruth had to say to Naomi, Thy people shall be my people, before she could say, Thy God shall be my God. Naaman, after he was cleansed, took two mules' burdens of earth from the land of Palestine so that he might be able to pray and offer sacrifice to Jehovah. Now in the age in which we live, all of this has been done away. Christ admitted to the woman at the well that the Jews were correct in worshiping at Jerusalem rather than at Mount Gerizim, saying that salvation was of the Jews. At the same time, however, he said that the hour was coming and already had come when men should stop approaching God on the basis of the Jewish altar and should come to him in spirit and in truth. In the days preceding Christ's coming and in the early part of our Lord's ministry, John the Baptist and Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. No man could go to heaven by that gospel. It was indeed good news that the Messiah was at hand. 
Men ought, therefore, to repent and turn to the gospel of God's grace, regardless of the form of presentation. Today we cannot preach the gospel of the kingdom, but it will be preached again, however, since our Lord says that the gospel of the kingdom is to be preached in all the world for a witness before the end shall come. Now, in view of all the teaching of the word of God on this subject, it is undoubtedly the gospel of the kingdom which is the added special message of the 144,000. Of course they present Jesus as the Savior. Many look to him and are saved, but they also preach the gospel of the kingdom presenting Jesus as Messiah. They are the sealed witnesses, the 144,000 like St. Paul, who go out with all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, having the prophecies of Joel fulfilled in themselves, as the first faint occurrences at Pentecost cannot possibly be the complete fulfillment which comes to full fruition in the last days. Note that the story of Pentecost not only links the occurrences of that day with the prophecies of Joel, but in a method that is frequently used in the Bible, carries the reader in the next phrase over thousands of years to future time. The last verses of the chapter definitely link these prophecies to the great tribulation. Multitudes accept the Lord Jesus as their savior as a result of this tribulation preaching. The greatest awakening of all time will take place while the Antichrist is consolidating his power and while he is spending his most vigorous effort to exalt himself in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, crushing those who refuse to bow before his statue. A numberless company is now seen from every nation and kindred and people and tongues. Though the multitude is taken out of every tongue, nevertheless it cries with a single voice. This verb is in the vivid, dramatic present tense. Their cry is one of praise to God for the salvation he has accomplished in their behalf. It has been accomplished by the Father and the Son and in the Spirit, and to them all praise is given. At this cry of praise, all the angelic beings stand round about the great circle of the elders and the living creatures, the cherubim around the throne of God, fall down upon their faces and worshiped God. How wonderful it is that the promises are fulfilled. We know that the angels are Bible students as we read in 1 Peter 1.12. Here we can see in the minds of this angelic host that they are aware of the awful condition that has prevailed because of the presence of sin in the universe. Why has God been patient? Why has God been so forbearing with the enemy? This is a mystery. But now the multitude cries out that salvation has come and the hosts of heaven worship God. The successive phrases of this book of Revelation have increased each time of thanksgiving. Glory and dominion are ascribed to him in the first phrase. Glory, honor, and power are given to him in the fourth chapter. This is increased to praise, honor, and glory, and dominion in the fifth chapter. While here we read the sevenfold perfection of praise blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. One of the elders now asks a question of John and then gives the answer. Who are these people which compose the great multitude and from whence have they come? Now it should be noted that those commentators who identified the elders in the earlier chapters as representing the church and who now identify this great multitude also as being in the church are in some trouble. 
they are in the anomalous position of seeing the church as being in heaven, as the glorified church, telling John, who is on the earth, as a prophet of the church, that the great multitude is none other than themselves, the church. Into such depths fall those who are not willing to admit that there is a restoration of literal Israel. Why are men unwilling to take the decisive voice that the Spirit of God gives to us in this passage? These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, they do not constitute the church at all. We, the body of Christ, are already seen in heaven at the time of this vision. Our calling, our service, and our destiny are all different from that of the great multitude. In the 24th of Matthew, our Lord speaks of that time of terror, which he himself calls the Great Tribulation. It is while that reign is upon the earth that this multitude of Gentiles, saved through faith in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to be manifested. As their calling and service differ from ours, so does their destiny. We, as the bride with the bridegroom, sit upon the throne to rule and reign with the Lord of glory. Our destiny is said to be that of the rulers and judges. We are to be kings and priests. But the 144,000 are to be the glorious bodyguard, the retinue of the Lamb, following him whithersoever he goeth. The destiny of the Gentile multitudes, however, is that of temple servants. We do not have space here to bring all of the Bible references which demonstrate that the temple will be rebuilt during the millennial kingdom and that a memorial of the death of Jesus Christ will be observed in the earth. Any reader of the book of Ezekiel knows, of course, that the temple will be the central earthly feature of the millennial reign. Here we are told that the great multitude which has come out of the tribulation period is to carry on the priestly work of that temple. The day of their tribulation is now over. It speaks of their glorious future. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst. The reason is given in the next verse. They shall be fed by the Lamb who shall lead them into living fountains of waters. They who have forsaken all for him and who have not been able to buy or sell since they have refused the mark of the beast and who as a result have been in the midst of hunger and thirst are now fed by the Lord Jesus himself. We have seen the sun as the symbol of government. Those who have suffered from the authority that is centered in the Antichrist shall thus suffer no more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor shall they know any heat. Heat is the Bible symbol of persecution and suffering, the trial of their faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, will have been found unto praise and honor and glory at the, the appearing of Jesus Christ. But now, as we read it here, this suffering is over forever. God himself shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And we thank thee, Lord Jesus, that thou dost already do this for many of us who have passed through difficulties and who need thy consolation. Speak to each heart this day. Give restlessness to any who are not born again. And upon all thy believing own, May thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And to thee be all the glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.